I think it was in 1987, I went to my very first Packers game at Lambeau Field. Uh, it was a glorious experience, except for I wasn't a Packers fan at yet at that point. I was a Chicago Bears fan. I grew up in Chicago, and I'd just been in Wisconsin a short time, and somebody had tickets, and the Bears were playing uh, at Lambeau, and so uh, I, they thought this would be wonderful for me to see. So I was uh, at Lambeau Field, sitting way up in the nosebleed-type section, and the Packers were beating the Bears just about the entire game. I mean, they, they, were, they weren't dominating per se. It was close, but they were just beating them the whole time. Last seconds of the game, though, uh, Jim McMahon, quarterback of the Bears, throws his perfect pass. I mean, I'm sitting in the, towards the end zone area, so it's kind of coming my way. But perfect pass, about 50 yards, it seemed anyway. This guy caught it, ran in just as time expired. Bears win. And so I was, <gasps> so I stood up. And then down below me, I, like thousands of, of drunken Packer fans that kind of just all kind of r- turn, look at me. I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this is a true story. At that point, I changed my allegiance. I was now a Packer fan. I, that, that was really how I ended up becoming a Packer fan. Now, the most famous Packer coach you guys know is Vince Lombardi, of course. The Super Bowl trophy is named after him. It's Lombardi Trophy. Uh, he had some strange ways about him. Every training camp, I'm told, beginning of training camp, sat all these guys down, and he'd grab a football and say, Gentlemen, this is a football. And you're thinking, ah, that's like saying, you know, maestro, this is a baton, or, you know, a a soldier, this is a rifle, or, you know, whatever. This kind of wasteful time. Although it probably wasn't a bad strategy because it took him to three consecutive national titles. Um, Lombardi knew that you can get so caught up when you're doing football with the razzle-dazzle stuff and the trick plays and the celebrity players. And those things might bring people into the stadium once in a while. But you're not going to consistently win that way. You know, you had to go back to the most important thing that you've got to guard. You got to, this is how you score. The most important thing. You know, Marcus Buckingham, he's a uh, uh, leadership guru person. He was, in his book, The One Thing You Have to Know, he's talking to uh, business folk, but he's talking to, to about a lot of case studies of businesses that just about derailed themselves. Some of them did because they got really caught up in the acquisitions and the mergers and the branching off into areas that they had no reason to branch off into. And he calls them back. He, he, the whole idea of the book is go back to the one thing that puts you on the map. The most important thing. Find it, know it, do it. He says this in his book. He says, today you must excel at filtering the world. You must be able to cut through the clutter and zero in on the emotions or facts or events that really matter. You must learn to distinguish between what is merely important and what is imperative. You must learn to place less value on all that you can remember and more on those few things that you must never forget. So, as Christians... What is our one thing? You know, if you ask, uh, what is the purpose of the church? I mean, that, that's, that's a crazy question. I mean, that's, that's 
there are many versions and varieties of the church out, you know, as there are, you know, flavors of, of ice cream at, at Baskin Robbins. You've got, of course, big, medium, and, and small churches, but you've got organ and piano, you've got full orchestra, you've got rock band, you've got a cappella stuff, you've got uh, lights and smoke, and you've got uh, hoods and robes, and you've got bells and smells, and you've got uh, KJV and NIV and NASB and ESV and the message, and then if you want to push it further, you can go into their stance on humanism or liberalism or hyper-Calvinism or fighting fundamentalism. You know, it's just this... The church can be any mixture of all those things. It's like there's a big smorgasbord, and so they're all vastly different. And so my dad, when I was a kid, took me to, to churches that pulled out rattlesnakes out of boxes and kind of... I'm serious. It was kind of a wild thing. What is the one thing in the church that we need to keep in mind. You know, we're between series. We finished Daniel. We're going to be starting the parables. And so in this, this, this in-between time, it's important, I think, as we start back into a school year, to stop and say, what is the one thing we're about? What is that one thing that we have to grasp, that we have to hold on to? We did a series on this a couple years back, but we're putting them all together today. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is it? Well, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus told us. He said, guys, I know you're going to forget stuff. I know you, my, my disciples, I know you, where you're at. I know what's going on. But here's what I want you to remember. Um, go into all the world and make disciples. That's your one thing, to make disciples. Let me ask you, are you a disciple? And I'm, you might say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, that's cool. But, but Jesus never called his followers Christians, right? You know that. He called them followers. He called them disciples. You say, well, I, I uh, uh, raised my hand that one time. I prayed with that guy. I came forward. I signed the card. And that's good things. But we're not called the people of the warm, fuzzy feeling, the people of the raised hand. We're, we're called followers. That's the name Jesus picked for us, disciples. And if I'm not mistaken, you want to know if you're a disciple, a follower, you ask, am I following Jesus? Because if you're not following Jesus, whatever else you may be, you're not a follower of Jesus because followers follow, right? They don't make sense. Followers follow. So are you following Jesus? Now, this is important because school year is starting back. And uh, you got that, that card, right? That all the stuff that we got going on. Plus, we got a lot more going on than that. We'll have more going on as the year goes on. We're going to do a lot this year. We're going to have services. We're going to uh, preach. And we're going to have music. And we're going to have communion. And we're going to have coffee. And we're going to teach classes. In the midweek, we're, we're going to um, do videos. And we're going to pray and we're going to play. And we're going to bury. And we're going to marry. And we're, we're, we're going to... Uh, feed the poor, and we're going to be very, 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 very busy doing a lot of stuff, but at the end of the year, if we haven't made disciples, then we, we, we failed, right? We didn't do what he asked us to do. doesn't matter if we are very efficient, if we are very frugal, if we are financially squeaky clean, if we are uh, fun and nice and courteous and kind, if, if we are politically correct, if we are legal, if we are avoiding scandals, good things, but if we don't make disciples... We failed. No one cares on a football team how wonderfully well the organization was run if the schedule at the end of the, the, end of the year, the deal is 0 and 16. It's not a good thing. You've, you've failed. So we don't want to be in a position as a church that we've failed. So how do we make disciples? What's a disciple look like? 
Well, we follow through some of the, in our years ago, we followed through some disciples in the New Testament. The guys that followed Jesus. What did they look like? What were their characteristics? What were about them? We found four things that they all kind of had in common. So we call them there are L4 followership. The first one is disciples learn from Jesus. Learn, learn from Jesus. Now, great, great text here. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is excellent on this. Uh, it says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. I, I like the NIV 1984 where it says, blessed is the one who does not listen to the counsel of the wicked. Or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Now, a couple of things with this. First of all, blessed means um, approved by God. It means happy. He knows he created us, what we need to be happy. And he says, if you're listening to the wrong folk, you're not going to be happy. Now, uh, we think this wicked sinners, mockers, we think these are like folk with horns coming out of their head and they're just like pervy, mean, horrible, horrific people. And we're going to stay away from these guys. These are folk you don't want to meet in a back alley. But that's not, these may be your friends or your family or people who have your back or people who are loyal to you. These, this wicked and sinners and mockers, what these are, these are people who have just, for one reason or the other, they are not living in submission to God. Now let's give them all the benefit of a doubt. Let's say they're good people, they're nice people, they're just the only, they're not mean, they don't hate God. The only reason they're here is because they don't know. Okay, that's fine. But for whatever reason, they have uh, chosen, they are living outside of submission to God. And what he's saying here is you have to be very careful who you listen to because when you allow folk outside of submission to God to have influence in your heart, to speak into your life, that's going gonna, gonna to end up in a bad, bad way. Who are you learning from? Who are you listening to? Real important. Real important. Um, look at this guy's progression or regression. It doesn't, he doesn't walk in step or he doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked. Then he stands in the way of he, he He stops, right? He's walking. Now he's going to stop. He stands in the way of sinners. That means he was just listening to the council before, but now he's participating in it. He's doing what they said. After a while, you know, it sounds okay. He's doing it. Then he's sitting in the company of, which means he has, he has put down roots. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's become this. So he's just listening to it. Then he started acting on it just a little bit. But now he's become it. And now he's reviling those who, who he used to be. This is the, the regression. And he says, if you, you listen to the wrong folk, this is where you go. Let me ask you, who are you listening to? And we're talking uh, Dr. Phil. We're talking a lot of the people we read. We're talking to the folk in, in the media. We're talking the musicians. We're talking the, the uh, uh, athletes. In there. And who, are you, who did you give permission to speak into how you think, how you feel, what you, what you believe? If you're listening to the wrong person. But he goes on, the psalmist goes on, and he says, there's someone you need to be listening to, though. Next verse, someone too. He says, but but, uh, blessed is the one who doesn't uh, walk in step with the wicked, or stand the way of sinners, or sit in the company of of, uh, mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That's what you need to be listening to. Now, it's, notice whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Uh, let me say this. It is normal for a follower of Jesus to delight in his word. They want to learn from him. They, they, they delight. Psalm 119 
says, oh, how I love your law. And we're talking, the books he's talking about are like Leviticus. And now he's loving this. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And this is not just the guy didn't have a life. He, he is uh, in love with the word of God. Goes on, next verse. Jeremiah's words. When your words, Lord, came, I ate them, for they were my joy and my heart's delight. Why? Because I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. It, it's, if you bear his name, it's normal. You will think his words are your joy and delight. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking. You're thinking, can we just be honest here? Can we, it's church. Can I be honest in church here? Because you know what? God's word's not my joy and delight. I, I mean, I want it to be. I, I tried to read it, but I don't delight in reading Matter of fact, I think when I think of reading God's word, I think, oh, it's just kind of depressing. And I, it's something I'm supposed to do. I know, I know, I know. But you know, I just don't. Get yeah, what do I do with that? First Peter 2. So it says, newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. See that on the bottom? Uh, this is King James. Uh, it's newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow by thereby. You know, if they already desired it, he wouldn't be telling them that they needed to desire it. Uh, this is a, a lie from hell. Sometimes we think that we don't control our longings. We don't control our, 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 our thirsts. We, we don't control what we delight in. We're just kind of wired that way. It's just like taste buds. I just, I just like what I like. And, you know, if you waited until you started to like caviar to eat it, you would never eat caviar ever. But once you eat it and you eat it, you, eat, you know what? You acquire a taste. And, and here's the idea. Our spiritual taste buds have been... Um, Messed up by the, the world. What we've been eating and eating and eating and eating. We've acquired wrong taste. But if we train ourselves. Sometimes, y'all, it's just discipline. It's, it's I'm going to God's word. Do I feel anything right now? No. But I know his word's not going to return void. I know this is how you're going to equip me for every good work. I know that in here somehow, somewhere, this is good for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. I know this is going to keep me from going to the left and to the right. I know this is what's going to prosper. I, I'm trusting you, Lord. I'm coming because, not because I feel anything or I want to right now. I'm coming out of obedience. You know, that's not a bad thing. If you come, then you, you acquire, you develop, you build the taste for God's word. So let me ask you, what are you doing to build a taste for the word of God? As you think about this year, you think of all the stuff that's going on this year, all the voices that are going to be speaking into your life, let me, let me throw this out for you. Um, it's a resource. You, if you have a pen or something, you should write this one down. But it's todayintheword.org. It's a uh, daily devotional. It's not compl- terribly long. It's from Moody Bible Institute. You know, it, it's, they're going to treat God's word right. Uh, there's some stuff out there that's a little bit shaky. This, there's many good ones, though, other than this one. But it, it's good. It'll take you through. It'll, it'll help you pray at the end. If you're wondering how... I can get into the word of God, how I can start feeding on it, how I can start redeveloping my taste buds, how I can, how I can love God's word. This is where you've got you to gotta start. Now, if you're a teenager, let me, let me bounce something off of you for a second, because you're going to be starting school if you haven't already this next week or so. And you get to school, you're going to have to learn calculus, and you're going to have to learn U.S. history, and you're going to have to learn literature, and on and on. Do you know why you have to learn those things? You have to learn them because the government said so. That's why you have to learn those things. And therefore, you should learn those things. That's good. 
But God has said something. You should learn something else. The government's not going to underline. God carries more weight than the government. And God says you need to learn his word. And so let me ask you. You're going to be studying hard on these other disciplines. And that's wonderful. But what are you doing here? Don't, let, don't just let the government determine what you're going to focus your mind on and your heart on. Somewhere along the line, you say, I'm going to take control of my spiritual life. I'm not going to wait for anyone to spoon feed me. I'm not going to wait for anyone to dictate a law that I've got to do this or not do it. I am going to learn. Here's, here's something you can write down. Josh.org. Josh McDowell's uh, webpage. He's got a daily devotional for teens. Again, there's a bunch of them online. This is a good one. There's a handful of others. Uh, You've got your smartphone, you've got your tablet, you've got your computer. You can always be there, always check this out. As you do this, we start into this uh, ministry year. Please, remember, disciples, those who follow Jesus, are those who learn from Jesus. By golly, I'm going to apply myself to get in there. Now, disciples learn from Jesus, but they also live for Jesus. When I was a little boy, I remember my father from... uh, uh, Tennessee would get frustrated with me once, once in a while and he would say uh, son how come you don't ever listen to me and we say, say, say son you, you ain't ever listening to me are you and he would just, just but you know what he wasn't true because if he asked me I would say oh no no dad I have heard you and I could repeat it back to him and I, I could tell it back to him with commentary the issue was, I didn't have any plan on living it out, though. I didn't want to apply it. I wasn't going to apply it. I could tell them, I think that in Christendom, our study of God's Word is this way. We study, and maybe we read, and we learn from, we got this down. But we never think about how this is supposed to change my life. I mean, let me, no show of hands, but let me be honest with you. How many of us came this morning saying, you know what? I'm going to hear the Word of God today. And my life is going to be different tomorrow. I just can't wait to see how I'm supposed to change and be different and grow and, and trust. We, we, that's just not normal for us. We, we study, but we don't do it to live for our Lord. Now, in John, it's very interesting. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These guys study the scriptures diligently. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wouldn't this be a sad commentary if we wasted time studying God's word, but we never did with it what he called us to do with it? And really, it ends up being a waste of time if we never take it to this next step, if we just learn from, but we don't live for. Studying God's word is never meant to be an end in itself. It wasn't for the early church. They did not study just to know it. They studied it not just to, not just to acquire knowledge, not just to, to, to be ready for Bible jeopardy. They, 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 they learned from in order that they may live for. They, they would show me, help me to know what I'm supposed to do. Help me to know you. That's why they learned that they might live for. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. This sounds like Psalm 1 a little bit, doesn't it? Don't, who are you listening to? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That God's word renews our mind. Because God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Default system, we don't have God's thoughts. But as we pour God's word into our mind, you know what? We begin to think like him. We begin to love the things he loves. We begin to hate the things he hates. We, do, we, we get more than just a taste for the word. We get a taste for living, for his values, for his principles, for his, his life. The... Uh, uh, 
disciples learn from, they, they live uh, for, how are you doing with this gap between learning from and living for? Sometimes in the church, I grew up in the church, I know this, I think this is magical somehow. And if I just read it, I don't even have to understand it. I just got to read it, and then uh, somehow I pray, Lord, you know, just do whatever it's supposed to do. And I think it's like spiritual vitamins or something. I don't have to know how they work either. They just kind of get in my system, and they kind of go all over, and they make me healthy. And I think that's what God's Word does sometimes. And so maybe sometimes I'll say, Lord, would you just apply this to me? And and, and God said, no, 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 hang on, time out, time out. You don't understand. I'm not going to apply this to you. I've given this to you for you to apply this to you. He said that, that if your, your hand causes you to sin or offends, then cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's using hyperbole. But what he's saying is, you do whatever you need to do to apply. Don't just learn it. Listen without any act of living it. But figure out how it applies in your life and then live it out. So how do you do this? And that's a, a, a series in and of itself. But let me throw one thing out that I think is helpful. It's helpful for me. Um, when you hear God's word, whether it's church, church, you know, one of the things, I didn't bring it up here, we've been running off the last few weeks, is sermon notes. A blank page for sermon notes. We keep it at the information desk. I would encourage you, bring a pen when you come, grab some of those, or go out and buy yourself a spiral notebook, and then take notes as the message of God's word's going on. Take notes. And then you've got to answer this question at the end. If the pastor knows what he's doing, uh, he will help you. But even if he doesn't, if he forgets, if he messes up, you have to take control for your own spiritual life. You say, I'm going to answer this question. And the question is this. So what? Yeah, there's lots of neat information, blah, blah, blah. So what? How does this impact my life? And if you write there, you, you write this out. This is what... I'm going to do because of this. This is how I'm going to, this is who I need to talk to. This is what, this is what I'm going to change. I'm going to add and subtract. This is what I'm going to think. Then you're starting down this road of living for. So we're learning from, disciples learn from they, they, Jesus. They, they live for Jesus. Third thing they do is they love as Jesus. They love as Jesus. You know, you know um, here's, a, here's something that might shock you a little bit. I don't mean to necessarily. But do you know that you were not saved for you? We think, oh, he called me because he wants me to go to heaven one day. He just can't live without me, I suppose. No, you were saved for community, believe it or not. In, in Genesis 1, God's looking at mankind. Remember, he just made Adam. Eve's not around yet. And it says, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, why did he say, did he say that just because loneliness is such a bad thing? No, that's not why he said this. Now, a lot of people live alone in that regard. It's, they're, they're fine. But one person living by themselves with no outside of community, they do not reflect the triune God, which is Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They do not, they're not being what God has called them to be. You know, in the Old Testament, it never says that God created persons for himself. He created a people for himself. He's called us to live in community with one another. That's what he's called us to do. Now, let's listen to these um, texts for a second. These are commands that he has called you and I to do when we get together. And ask if you can do these in a big crowd. 
He says, when, he says in scripture, when, when his people get together, they need to love one another, encourage one another, care for one another, serve one another, wash the feet of one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, bear the burdens of one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, be at peace with one another, submit to one another, comfort one another, confess your sins to one another. Those are not big group words. We're going to go around this morning and let's all confess our sins to the whole group. I'm probably not, I'm not going to do that. Because maybe I don't know you. I can't trust you. I'm not sure what you're going to do with that information. You haven't demonstrated that you care for me. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Can you imagine, serve, let's all serve each other this morning? I do not have time. None of us have time. You're going to wash the feet of all. We don't have time this morning. These are small group words. It's interesting. New Testament church, uh, most, most of them, very small churches. To our understanding, Church of Corinth, about 50 people. I grew up in a church of, of 70 people. Uh, when the church gets so big, we have to get small. We have to get around folk in a, a smaller group. You know, it's, it's interesting, the, the church, the word church, it's the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, it appears in the New Testament 115 times, 113 times it's translated church. Uh, you ask yourself, well, what is the church? Well, Merriam-Webster knows. It's, her first definition is a building used for religious services. But the word ecclesia does not mean building in any way, shape, or form. There were no, you know, there were no church buildings until the 200s. I mean, they probably met in houses and stuff, but they didn't build church buildings. They just didn't exist, and yet the word was still around. The word means to call out. It was a secular term, and whenever people would get together for whatever reason, they would be called the ecclesia. They were called out once. They called together for a purpose. The New Testament writers hijacked that term. And they said, when God's people come together, they're called out by Christ for Christ. They're the ecclesia, the called out ones. You know, you're never ever commanded in scripture to go to church. You know that? You're called to be the church. Big difference. And I'm not so sure coming to a crowd event on Sunday morning, which is not a bad thing, but I'm not so sure that that is equivalent to being the church. It's just not. You need to be in an environment where those one another's can be done. And I'm in a couple of different informal uh, uh, small groups where there's some folk who can hold me accountable, call me out, encourage me. They know some stuff going on in my life that nobody else knows. Are you in anything like that? And I'm not talking about my family because your family may be here in town, but you know they're not walking with the Lord or they don't like to talk about spiritual things or they would never call each other. It just wouldn't work. We're commanded. We don't do this because it's a good program. It's a fun thing. It's an easy thing. We're, we're, we're commanded to do this. Followers of Christ, they learn from Jesus. They live for Jesus. They love as Jesus. The fourth thing they do is they lead to Jesus. Ah. By the way, let me back up a second. John McCain in his book, um, Faith of My Fathers, he talks about his own, uh, chronicles his life, but also his time when he was in Vietnam. His plane was shot down over North Vietnam after you know, he went to uh, Annapolis uh, Naval Academy. His plane shot down. Uh, he didn't eject right. Both of his arms broken uh, multiple places. He lands in a rice paddy. The people there pull him out. They beat him uh, terribly before his captors come, put him in a POW camp. He's there for five years, undergoing torture and abuse on a regular basis. Now, McCain says that the thing that kept me alive during those, those days were the other POWs. And there's... there's 80 other guys in the camp. 
And the Viet Cong would keep them separated. You did not hang out together. They kept them separated. And so McCain said this. He says, says, it's an awful thing, solitary. It crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. Having no one else to rely on, to share confidences with, to seek counsel from, you begin to doubt your own judgment and your courage. He said while they were in camp, they began to communicate with each other, like flashing hand signals or observation. They would leave little notes on pieces of toilet paper. They would tap through the wall, um, but they would communicate. And he said, of all the activities I devised to survive solitary confinement, nothing was more beneficial than communicating with other prisoners. It was simply a matter of life and death. He says that, that each evening what he did is he would just lay there and recall another prisoner's name and run that over and say that over and over and over again. He says, knowing the men in my prison and being known by them affirmed our humanity and kept us alive. It, followers of Jesus are in, in community. They, they, they love as Jesus did. Are you in such a, a community? If you're not... Call the church, talk to Scott. They can get you in some sort of a small group. We got it. That's what our small groups are, are designed to do. Fourth thing is followers of Jesus lead others to Jesus. Um, Matthew 28, when he said, go make disciples, what we think sometimes is we think, well, we're going to make better disciples. We're going to take people, see who are already disciples, and we're going to make them bigger, stronger disciples just by pumping their head with knowledge. That's what we do. But that's not what Jesus said. When he said, go into all the world, he's talking about taking people who are right now today not disciples, but making them disciples. And when we, we think about this idea of leading other people to Jesus, man, we go, oh, you know, this is the hardest one. I can, do, I, mean, I can probably do everything else, but this one, uh, I don't have the gift, and it's not my personality, and I don't know what to say, and I try to witness to people, and I, for all they know, but I'm done. Buddha died for him, and you know, the Holy Spirit. I, I've just got it all mixed up. And so I don't, I better, it's not good for me to witness, I'm telling you. Um, I think we, we, we complicate things too much. And, and we, we miss scripture on this one. A uh, lot of examples. But Mark chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is, is uh, he comes across Levi. He's going to change his name to, to Matthew. But it says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began to teach him. As he walked along, he saw Levi. It's going to be Matthew. Son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi's not one that you would expect ever to come to know Jesus. Levi was an outcast. He's Jewish, but he pretty much turned his back on his Judaism. He sided with the Romans. He like, used the Roman guards to beat up the Jewish people to get their money to give to the Romans so the Romans could use it to persecute the Jewish people. He was just a, a turncoat. Benedict Arnold, huge, were the tax gatherers. No one liked him, but Jesus called him. Jesus didn't see him as that and called him. Now, this verse is a fascinating verse because John R.W. Stott says that this, this, you can't just take this verse. It's, it's hooked up to other verses. And this, this verse is not, it's not about Matthew's testimony. It's about his mission. And we don't have it on the screen, but the very, very next verse, what Matthew does, and there's several verses, that's why we don't have it up there. Let me surmise it. Matthew throws a party for all of his friends, all of his tax gatherer friends. So this is, this is Matthew's crowd. His, his tax gatherers there, probably some adulterers and prostitutes and guys who like strong drink and con artists and, and white-collar crime. He's got it all right there. 
This is the group he ran in. I mean, he, he knows that lifestyle very well. They knew, knew him. But he also knows, I mean, this is, you got to get this. Jesus didn't say, go do this. You need to tell people about me. Matthew just knew he had to because his friends... Uh, they live a life of emptiness. They live a life of bitterness and hate. They don't have to because Jesus really does give forgiveness and he really does uh, create a new life and he really does give hope. He really does. And he believes in people like, like me, like tax gatherer people and says, I've got to introduce them. So he throws this big party for these guys and brings Jesus to the party to introduce them. We find this in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, um, Andrew it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. He followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, the first thing he did, the first thing he did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Simon is going to become Peter. Can you imagine if Andrew said, you know what, this is just... This is not me. I can't tell people about, I just, I can do other things, but I can't do that. And so what if he just didn't go get Simon? Then the church would not know Peter. We wouldn't have first and second Peter in our Bible. So much of the foundation of the church, we would not have it if he, if he copped out. Keep staying in John chapter 1. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. And Philip found Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Listen to Nathanael's response. Nazareth, can any good thing come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. This is great. Because he tried to tell people about Jesus, introduce people to Jesus, lead people to Jesus. But he met some resistance. I mean, Nathaniel initially was like putting on the brakes and whoa, and had all of his theological reasons and why this was such a stupid thing and how he was so weak and, and foolish to think this. He had, but you gotta love, you gotta love Philip's response. He didn't try to debate it. He didn't have, maybe he didn't have the answers. He said, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind and now I'm see. I'm just telling you, come and see for yourself. As we try to lead other people to Jesus, maybe they are gonna, we're gonna get some, certainly, uh, criticism, rebuke, pain. And it's okay to say, you know what, I don't understand, you got some good questions, I don't understand this, I don't know. I know once I was blind and now I see, why don't you come and just listen? Hey, maybe, I mean, if it's true, this is amazing stuff. You find Apostle Paul in Luke cha- or Acts chapter 9. It says, at once he, this is as soon as Paul comes to know Christ. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It, of course he did, because followers lead people to Jesus. That's what they do. All of those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call him this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yeah, it was. But he's come to know, he's now a follower of Jesus. And followers lead people to Jesus. The Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. As soon as she's done with her, she's not even done with the conversation with Jesus. She just runs away from the conversation with Jesus because she has to tell somebody. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. The end of that Matthew party, after they, they do the party in Mark 2.16, it says, When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, 
Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? In verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. You don't, you're missing everything. You're clueless, Pharisee people. You're clueless. I didn't come for the people on the inside. I came for the people on the outside. So I came, I came to, to introduce people to a transformational life through me. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm for. That's what my mission is. Again, we say, I, how do I, how do I, not, I got it's, it's not as complex as we make it sometimes. First thing we can do, and you can do that. You can, you can, you can, you can do this very easy. I'm telling you. First thing, pray. Is there somebody that comes to your mind and heart that you're really concerned, that needs to know Christ? You know they need to know Christ. Why don't you start off praying? God, please. And if, if, if you could use somebody else, that'd be great. But if you, if you have to use me, if you want to use me, then may I be courageous to, to figure, know what I'm supposed to do at the right time. But please, would you bring this pe- person to you? Would you please do that? If you're praying that passionately, don't you think that's a prayer he wants to answer? Pray. The second thing, easy, and this one's easy too, uh, love the other person. I mean, stop and ask yourself, how can I show this person the love of Christ? I mean, i do not seeing anything. I mean, how do I, maybe it's supporting them, maybe it's serving them in some, how can I love on them? If you're praying for the person and loving them, showing them the love of Christ, that's huge. Uh, a third thing, this is where it gets a little more scary, but not too bad. We call it raise the flag. And all you do when you raise the flag is you just wait for the right time, uh, whether it's spirit prompting you in your heart or whatever, and you, they talk some terrible thing going on in their life, and you say, you know what? Um, I don't know if you believe in God or anything, but I, I do. Uh, and I believe through Jesus that he hears my prayers, and you know what? I'm going to be praying for you. That's, that's, that's all you've done. You haven't asked him for anything. You haven't had tried to remember verses. That's all you've done. But you've let that person know that this person is... Well, that's a God type person. Uh, you've raised the flag. And then here's, here's the, the fourth thing. E- easy enough. Easy enough. And it's not on the list. So you have to write this one down. And that is invite. Our, our strategy is invest and invite. Invest those top three. You invest in a relationship somehow. And then at the right time, you invite them to the car rally, to It's a Wonderful Life, to a church thing, a series going on. Something's happening. Justin's got something going on in a Sunday school class that you know this person, it's right where the questions they have. You invite them out. I'll go with you, and I'll take you out for lunch afterwards if you just just come kind of thing. Uh, Invest and and invite. There was a uh, poem written several years ago. It says, I stay near the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those whose blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, 
live because they have found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in it and find him. So I stay near the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics in a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes venture a little farther But my place seems closer to the opening, so I stay near the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not even found the door. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. But as for me, I shall take my old accustomed place. Near enough to God to hear him and know that he's there, but not so far from men as to not hear them. And remember that they're there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I shall stay by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand near the door. Can you, can you just imagine with me for a second? How cool would it be personally? How cool would it be for the church? How, how cool would it be for his kingdom? If every one of us in here, sometime this year, we, we were praying for somebody uh, passionately. We, we, we were seeking to, to love on them with Jesus' love. We raised the flag. We invited... Wouldn't it, we brought them to Christ this year, each of us. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Is that the kind of thing he can do? Yeah, it's the kind of thing. Because followers lead people to him. So let me, let me ask, as we get into the school year and it all gets really more busy than it's been, as a follower of Christ, the learning from Jesus, is that where you, when you leave here today, that's, that's, yeah, that's where I need to work on it. about Living for Jesus. There's something going on that shouldn't be going on or something not going on that should be. Living for him. Is, is, is that for you? How about the loving as? You're just not in community. You're doing this thing Lone Ranger style and you're just missing the church. Or leading to what is the, the application for you 